Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. You're home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is a special episode of Matt Lewis and the News and Talk of Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. I'm your host, Corey Nathan. It's so cool to be with Matt Lewis. Matt, how you doing, man? Hey, Corey. Always great. Yeah, yeah. So this is, I, you could tell that I'm super, super excited because I'm excited to welcome to the program John Popper, widely known as one of the greatest harmonica players in the world. Uh, I think of him as the Charlie Parker of blues harp, a singer, songwriter, front man for the band that many of my family and friends can attest is arguably my favorite band of all time. And definitely one I've seen more than uh, live, more than any other band, Blues Traveler. John Popper, thank you so much for taking the time. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we <laughs> could do this. Yeah, and you uh, got thanks it. for saying Charlie Parker. Uh, I don't know if there's ever going to be another Charlie Parker. No, that guy was special. Well, I just thought he he kind of reinvented jazz. He hit the reset button on jazz. He did. I'd say he and Dizzy together because uh, Dizzy uh, really what was more of a. Uh, you know, uh, stable, you know, uh, bird didn't think as much. He was, uh, he just had that intuition to follow it. And he would take it to places that were just absolutely amazing and bizarre. And yeah, he did. I don't even think just jazz. I think he, uh, his approach to harmonies and playing variations off of harmonies was, um, groundbreaking for music. Yeah. Yeah. So those were, those were largely your influences more so, than say other or were you influenced by just everything just blues uh, well you know what's funny is that actually what really influenced me i would say uh it was kind of two points in my life i, I wanted to be a comedian you know i was really into comedy and saturday night live and um i was just good enough to know that i wasn't quite funny <laughs> enough you know like that's right there but um it was that's how i saw the blues brothers and so that really got me into wanting to play the harmonica i um something about that spoke to me and i remember uh, was it uh annie libowitz or fran libowitz the, the photographer she was on david letterman and she was talking about uh taking that picture of jake and elwood you know where their faces are painted blue and she was trying to get them away from they're being all serious musicians and people kept saying dan was like paul butterfield and she wanted to get them back to their comedy and all i was thinking is who's paul butterfield so I go to my, uh, I'm in Princeton, New Jersey. I'm a kid in high school and Princeton has this great record exchange. Uh, it's one of these great old record stores. Uh, I think it's still there. Um, but there was a briefcase full of blues. Um, but I, I went and I looked for Paul Butterfield and I found his live double album. And I actually, the first night I heard, I was so blown away. He was, um, the first harmonica that really, in my mind took melodic 
took it melodically away from just the traditional kind of harp playing. And I went to actually kiss the record. I was so happy that I found <laughs> this record. I dropped it on the floor and broke it. But luckily, it was a double album. So I played uh, Drifting and Drifting off that album. Every morning I would get up, it was like Reveille, and I would just play the harp solo from that. And I would learn that incessantly. And then someone showed me uh, Sugar Blue. Um, like I got to go and meet him and actually see him play. And he was the first harp player I'd seen go up high on the harmonica like that. And so, you know, I had five gin and tonics when I was in high school and walked out of there totally sober and started to go to work on that harmonica. But it was, it was the blues brothers led me to the old blues guys like Elmore James. Um, and, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Paul Butterfield led me to the Elmore. He was doing an Elmore James song on his album. And that led me to the old blues guys like uh, Johnny Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters. This was all a huge revelation for me. But eventually, somehow, this all led me to Jimi Hendrix. And that was the second, that was when the I knew that I was going to be a musician when I heard Jimi Hendrix. That kind of put the nail in the coffin on anything else but being a musician. There was something about Voodoo Child. Um, the long one with Steve Winwood, and then the uh, the short one, you know, Voodoo Child Slight Returns, what everyone thinks of when they think of uh, Voodoo Child. Yeah. Those songs, um, there's some way that he would use his guitar that it sounded like the environment around you, you know, it sounded like a storm was happening. And he was really great at having this all-encompassing, you know, it, it was like the Doppler effect. He used that really well. And, th and that was something that I could kind of emulate on the harmonica. And for me, it didn't matter that he was playing the guitar and I was playing the harmonica. I think the point of Hendrix was, I don't care what I'm playing. You know, I just have these sounds I need to get out. And that, that was really who I started ripping off as much as I could, you know, certainly spiritually and uh, as much melodically as I could. And from Hendrix, that led me out to all directions. Suddenly I could appreciate jazz. You know, I could get into Miles Davis after Jimi Hendrix. I get into Coltrane and that wound up being a huge influence as well. But Charlie Park was definitely, as far as jazz went, kind of the, the you know, the rock that shattered the expectations uh, and broke new ground and, and made it possible to go into new places. And I think that's what Coltrane was doing. And I think that's what um, everyone who followed him was doing. And in our um, high school, we had this uh, big band, Mr. B. Yes, Mr. B and all that stuff. And so that really, uh, you know, you were forced to be uh, hearing these old um, big band numbers, which were really actually some of the best written songs that America's produced. So, you, you know, it was actually wound up being kind of a rich little musical bit of catching up I did because I, I really wasn't into music until I was a teenager. And, um, even I was a little late to that then. And so after that, um, you know, I, I really did have a lot of catching up to do, but my approach to music was probably a little uh, more innocent, I want to say. You know, I, I wasn't, I couldn't grasp uh, genres and what was cool and stuff. I, yeah, I mean, all of these things were, you know, 20 years old by the time I got to them. <laughs> I remember, even though we tried working with her, I sort of discovered Ani DeFranco's music in like, the 2000s you know i'm always late to the party uh, tom waits i loved him and like the same time you know like wow who's this tom wait guy and, like i'm listening to music uh songs from his from like the 70s and you know i i was never really on time when it came to uh influences but you know i like a like a fine wine speaking of you, you were an influence on us on nathan and i and oh thanks the way that the way that we ended up meeting you on twitter was 
Um, mm-hmm. I used to play in a band that played some blues traveler covers. And Nathan, that's what prompted <laughs> Nathan to tweet you. And I wanted to see if, if you would listen to <laughs> just if yeah. you listen to like maybe 10 or 15 seconds of a couple songs. I would give me your to- honest, unvarnished opinion. Here we go. This is the Backyard Apples is the name of the band. Yeah. <laughs> you can totally hear the popper influence, right? Yeah. Not bad. Even in the voice, right? Yeah. That's uh you you can cut that one now, Nathan. We I don't know if you want to play the Good other song. one. But, uh, was that you singing? No, that's not me singing. And I was actually, I'm playing bass on that song. A guy named, okay. George, Spiegel, a guy named George Spiegel wrote that one. But this is the one that you're playing steel guitar, I'm right? playing guitar on this one, lead guitar. Okay. There you go. Total popper influence. David Lance on, on Blues Harp. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for indulging me. Uh, uh, how bad were we? Tell David I said he's good. You can hear him wanting to go up and get all intricate up in the high stuff. And um, I hear his, uh, he wants to be melodic. So, like, that's a good, that's the right instinct. Yeah. Uh, it's something that, um, what is it, Taj Mahal told me. is uh, he, he said, that, you know, being a melodic harmonica player is something that people forget to do all the time. He's a great example of one as well. He's a really great harp player because he doesn't sound like, you know, I, I think in the 80s, I was getting really sick of what a traditional harmonica was supposed to sound like, which is basically, which is certainly nice, but, you know, there's more it can do. I, I noticed on the last album, the one that came out last summer, that you, yeah. got, you got back to like more of a traditional blues harp. I love how they say back to because we were never there in the first place. That's what always <laughs> album we it took us this is the album it took us 35 years to finally make like we were we were always railing against a traditional blues moniker we were always trying to like if you will travel from it like i think that point i noticed that in the early days that that the reason that i was more drawn to you guys than say the black crows or even your buddy chris barron's band was that you were you were playing with a lot of different stuff you were changing keys you were changing time signatures Part of that helped uh, having a bass player who was slightly dyslexic, but uh, and and really had trouble counting, and he wasn't used to any of the traditional things. Um, you know, like the hardest thing for uh, Bobby to play was because a traditional arrangement like that was not in his headspace. He was a complete deadhead. Um, you know, tripping balls when he was really young. So, like, his sense of symmetry and counting was askew, but. His approach to like would be like and he'd start taking that for a ride and like I'm trying to tell him no that's that's the cue for the end of the song. So you're jam band by by necessity almost. Very liberating rhythmically. Actually, it it blew my head open literally because I. I was trying to keep up. I was trying to count. 
and he made it impossible to count. So then you were forced to kind of find it. And there was something about that stumbling and falling. We would be going through 15, eight time signatures or seven, four all the yeah. time. And you know it. The thing is, if you knew it, it would mess it up. But oh. like what he kind of got me to do and it was helpful was sort of unlearn the stuff. You know, I, I think it's important to learn it first and then try and forget it. It's a weird uh you know, counterintuitive thing you got to do. But um, it was that combination. You know, I'd been, Mr. B had been training Brendan and me to be very musically uh, aware of what we're doing or, you know, trying to anyway. And um, Chan and Bob somehow were rejected by the Princeton music program. Like, I, I think he wrote them off as, you know, uh, shiftless stoners. Well, Chan like, was a football player. He was buff, man. Yeah, but he hung out at the arch and was smoking weed and, you know, get drunk and stuff like, you know, they were troublemakers, you know. Yeah. And uh, they weren't band nerds. Well, Brendan and I were band nerds. So mm-hmm. we were embraced by our music program and especially playing an instrument that, you know, there wasn't any real formal training for. Like I, I wasn't he tried Mr. B tried to get me to play the trumpet, but I was terrible. And there was no harmonica teacher. So that really freed it up for me. I got to. I'd plug into the bass amp, you know, with the bass player. And um, I had a little tape recorder mic that I stuck into a, a plunger so I could fit the harp in the plunger and it would hold it. And I called that my harmonica mic. And yeah. basically, he couldn't tell me what to do. It was great. I just sort of sat there and then he'd point to me. So he didn't throw cymbals at you like in the movie? <laughs> no. I remember cymbal. Whiplash. Bugged anybody, but he would have loved that image. He would have loved the reputation for doing that. So, John, yeah. The, uh, so the blues harp player I played with started yeah. off as like a pianist, and he literally learned to play off of a. It was like a cassette tape and a pamphlet called something like "How to Play Harmonica." Yeah. Have you ever run across? Apparently, it's really good. Um, I played. I remember the guy's name who did it? Um, it was. Uh, there, there are several books like that that were out at the time, and they were very helpful. And it's amazing, right, that you could buy something like that. The little pamphlet that comes in your harmonica with you, it's uh, take your honer with a finger at each end, hold it with pride, it will be a friend. <laughs> like there was a little poem that came with it that showed you how to play. And, um, you know, it's, it's useful. There's little arrows that point up if you're supposed to exhale and down if you're supposed to inhale. But nobody can see the holes and the numbers while they're playing, you know, so you ultimately are feeling your way. And that's what's really great. It's an instrument of low expectation because you can really play like Alanis Morissette and people think that you're great. But, you know, I, I remember that uh, one hand in my pocket song she does. Mm-hmm. You can, as a harmonica player, I can hear two things. One, she's managed to fit just about the entire harmonica in her mouth at once. <laughs> you hear when she does that hard exhale, she's breaking a reed. I can hear her breaking the reed every oh, wow. time. It gives new meaning to your, your your famous quote, harmonica is like life. Sometimes you suck and sometimes you blow. Well, sometimes <laughs> you blow. Hey, I wanted, to, I wanted to talk a little bit about politics. And one of my favorite videos, not just, not just my favorite Blues Traveler videos, but one of my favorite like 90s videos is, is Hook. And it seemed to me like you were really capturing this Citizen Kane thing, the imagery there. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff 
The Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. Well, that was an idea. I think that that was, um, you know, we wanted to show all the different uh, hypocrisies of uh, language and a politician is a great one, you know. Uh, politicians are known for saying stuff that um, somehow convinces you, but we never believe a word they say. Like you kind of know <laughs> territory. And uh, basically, you know, writing Hook, I find in my old age that people have come to discover that song sort of over again. And the less I say about it, the more like J.D. Salinger I seem. You know? <laughs> I'm like, Every time I hear it, though, at the end of the song, when you're yeah. you're sort of I don't I don't want to call it rapping, but but you're you're singing very yeah. so, sort of scat. Right. I, I always think that you could have put in some dirty stuff very easily. Well, a lot of people thought I want to burn all of your cities to the ground was something about the titties. I I didn't say it, but every time <laughs> I heard the song, especially after bust balloons, there should be a reference to titties. But uh, no, that's not what I was doing. I was more. Concerned with destruction than sex. <laughs> Wait, you know, you do you do talk in the book about not wanting to like deprive someone of their interpretation of your song. Yeah. There was one story you told about a guy uh, who came on yeah. the band's bus. He was about to kill himself, and uh, then he just listened to I think it was just Wait and decided that to give his life to Jesus, as he talked about. He was going to. He had. He said he sat down with like a. a a brick of heroin and was going to just fix until he just drifted on out. And that was his plan. And then he heard, uh, just wait and saw a picture of his family and then gave his life to Jesus, which is kind of scary. Cause you know, now he's trying to like blame all that on me, <laughs> you know, like he did it. He decided not to die. Right. So him, like, and I pointed out, you saved your life. I did. I mean, you used me as a, an image or a, a symbol to go by, or, you know, you took the words of my song and they meant something to you, but what they meant to you was his. Right. I didn't tell him don't die and give him lots of great advice. I was singing about a completely other situation, which I would tell you, except then everybody's going to go, Oh, that's what it's about. <laughs> it's too much pressure in a way. Like you, you've become his Jesus. The, the people that come up with, uh, meanings for the song sometimes come into things that I wasn't even thinking of. And I'm like, wow, that's really good. Now with Hook, I was thinking of, you know, basically what people are talking about. And I thought Pachelbel was kind of a, a catchy thing. to, And that kind of got me writing about a Hook, like which came first. But to tell you the truth, I wrote it when I was on the toilet and <laughs> I had a dripping faucet and I was humming uh Pachelbel's can and I was like hey this is good with a backbeat and I was like oh this is something and I actually was trying to write the first I was thinking more melodic than anything when I started writing it I was thinking um you know that police song um I think it's again again I can't remember the name of that song but it's that police song 
and can't the, stand losing you. Is that yeah, the, yes, yeah, yeah, can't yeah. stand losing. Thank you. And the first phrase in that first lyric was um, kind of what I was thinking of phrasing hook. You know, like the the vo- the the lyrics uh, on the verse. And then another aspect is my brother. Um, he's uh, you know, there's uh, I got three brothers and three sisters. And my older brother was saying, you know, you put too many words in your verses. You got to like space them out more. So I did the first two verses the way he wanted. And then I did a third verse where I over crammed it and just <laughs> put in everything, but including the kitchen sink. And again, because this was Paco Bell, it, it fit very well to just do that in the fast part. And I was trying to like over syncopate it as much as I could just to kind of show him like I can do it your way. And, my way. and that wound up becoming a bridge. And, um, I remember the first thing uh, Mike Barbiero, my producer, said when he heard it, he said, it's very self-aware. The song's very aware of itself. And um, that definitely, I think with Hook, it's definitely talking about um, the writing of that song, which is about the writing of that song. And uh, I've just been amazed by how uh, people just give them like 20 years and suddenly everybody's running with that. And uh, I like it. Yeah. uh, Basically, I just try to say less so I seem intelligent. (laughs) <laughs> so I do, I do need to ask you a politics yeah. a more on the nose. Sure. In the book, you talk about, you know, you're socially uh, liberal, but uh, fiscally. I'm basically a libertarian. But, you know, I was at a Ron Paul rally in 2013. Uh, I might have told this story in the book, too. But they they were um, it's like I, I saw what a mob looks like when there was libertarians generally are indifferent about pro-choice, pro-life. They they leave that up to the individual to decide. So in a, in essence, they're pro-choice you know, historically. Um, but that crowd wasn't. That when you, you well, told it's that because story. Ron Paul has this cult of personality going because he is such a force in the libertarian movement. He's pushed them into being pro-life. And it was really more his personal opinion that they had to back up because he was the guy running this. And they had a pro-choice libertarian come on stage and he was being horribly booed. Like, like it was as though they, you know, it was, it it felt like uh, Munich in the thirties, you know, it was, and this is a guy who's not just a, he's not a Democrat. He's not a communist. He's not a fascist. He's not even a Republican. He's a libertarian with one slightly differing view. And he said, you know, maybe you could consider libertarianism an anti-choice party if you consider it from the mother's point of view as a property rights issue. Boo, you should die. We should kill it. Like, I was worried for his safety. Wow. Were you were you on like, were you performing or were you just I went there? to? Yeah, I was I was there supporting Ron. I was thinking these are my people. I'm a libertarian. But at that moment, I realized as soon as you have people, that's where the trouble starts. And I started backing away. (laughs) You know, I will always be a libertarian, um, but I'm going to be my own kind of libertarian, which is the entire point of being a libertarian. Now, the problem with libertarians is that they tend to uh, sort of idealize a utopian ideal, which is what if there were no rules and what if people didn't need permits? You can take this to absurd points where like there shouldn't be driver's licenses. You know, uh, we don't need that. I, I think that I'm just not a joiner. You know, I I tend to root for the non-Trump Republicans in an argument uh, because nobody's rooting for them. You know, like I I tend to really be an advocate when the Republicans start 
taking control and start talking about God and school and stuff like that, or, you know, uh, critical race theory, I start cringing, you know, I start yeah. being like, oh, you're now making an issue where there isn't an issue. But then when Democrats uh, start talking about, you know, all we need is $30 trillion and we can have a perfectly engineered society, that makes me cringe as well. So, you know, I, I, I guess what winds up happening is that the parties that are fighting each other now i tend not to regard i see them as a you know a momentary thing so you should you know, start the shriverian party how do you pronounce it another party on my you know like that's what happens then you split into so many different factions that nothing ever gets done and then you nobody has any power so you know i think that humans are binary we need a us and a them so i think the two-party system for that reason makes sense to me but this last election, I did vote for the Libertarian, but I knew I was throwing my vote away. But I couldn't vote for Trump. And I just didn't have it in me to vote for Biden either. Mm. And, you know, neither of those guys have disappointed. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I, I voted for uh, nobody. In, I said none of these clowns. That was my right in. That's funny. And then I vote, tried voting for the Libertarian. But it was really a cop out on my part. I'm not picking a side because both of the sides are kind of terrible. But in, in Washington state, you can almost afford to be uh, idealistic in that way and, and do a vote in conscience. If you were in, say, Wisconsin or, or Arizona. I would feel a lot more pressure to have to really just swallow something. Yeah. And I probably would have voted for Biden, but I didn't. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't because there's, Something about the Democrats um, that's that's really problematic for me as far as um, they they want um, no fiscal responsibility is really as important as their agenda. And the progressive side of the party has just really gotten crazy. Now, I used to think I was original in that thought, but I think everybody is kind of bashing wokeness. Yeah, they can call it wokeness already means that the term for wokeness isn't what it meant previously. It used to mean that. Are you aware of other people's conditions besides your own? And now it's come to mean, you know, you wear this and you do that and you believe this. It, it suddenly defines you now. There's and like an orthodoxy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's a dogma to um you know, wokeness. And that's every dogma to me is uh, my enemy. I am not a fan of dogma. I think it used to be like creative. Sorry, Corey. Um, I think it used to be like creative people who by and large um, didn't like the right because it was like the, the Christian coalition or, you know, trying to shut down. But now it's the left that's like censoring like comedy and maybe even music. Like, yeah. Oh, try being a comedian at a college campus. It's impossible. Yeah. That's really sad. You know, I understand that there are people who've been marginalized, you know, forever. And that, that matters to them. And that's important to recognize. And you don't want to make anyone feel bad. But, you know, speaking as a white hetero man, you got to laugh at yourself. Like, you know, you're we all come from a ridiculous place. The mere act of putting on clothes reveals how silly and insecure and dumb we are. But I'm glad there's clothes because I'm silly and insecure and dumb, you know, <laughs> a human being. So you have, you kind of alluded to this already, but you have spiritual thought running through all of your music. I mean, a lot of folks point to 
uh, what is it? Trina Magna, but that whole, like that whole album, actually the whole save the soul album. But I always looked at um, optimistic thought as, as uh, I mean, that, that was one of my favorite sort of spiritual songs, but where, where's your spiritual beliefs now? Hangover song to me. It's like, Ooh, whatever I did, I'm sorry. And now I know at least right now, <laughs> that what's right and what's wrong in my heart anyway but as for last night well you know you, you live in you know i will disgrace you but uh forgive if i replace you but you know i was going through something yeah that's kind of the idea of that song but thank you for saying that so where's where where's your spiritual belief has has having a, a daughter changed kind of where your head's at spiritually think uh, like in terms of spiritual thoughts little more weight to uh my own opinions because now i see her getting it mm. you know like the level that she and i um she, you know she she gets absurdist humor you know really quickly um the other day you know she's six and she said i'd like to say a few words <laughs> handlebars balloon <laughs> and <laughs> i don't that's just her like that's the thing. She's she's got comic timing already, and so now I've kind of uh, it, she seems to reflect uh, a lot of my inherent opinions. While still, you know, she's with her mom and she's going to a very progressive school, but um, she knows how to laugh at herself. So you know, I I kind of hope that's the balance of both. Yeah. You know, if she has that awareness and sensitivity, but can also see the absurdity and just even trying to form ideas. There's a certain amount of uh, humility you need to approach it with. And I, I'm hoping that's what she comes up with. But again, she's sick. So I'm not trying to cram any of uh, or interpret her opinions too much because, you know, she has a right to them. I don't want to get, you know, hold her to too much stuff. Remember when you were six, you said you believed this. <laughs> John, could you talk a little bit? I... You know, so I'm a I'm a writer at the Daily Beast and do oh. some cable news punditry, um, and I've been around long enough to see just a, a little taste of of notoriety and to also see like how you can be up in the industry and then they can drop you. And yeah. I'd love to hear your your sort of take on fame and the industry and how you have like ridden that roller coaster. Well. We've managed to create something of a middle class of rock and roll. Like on years when the touring uh, industry is down, we do okay. And then on years when everybody's going great guns, we do okay. You know, like we're, we're always there. We've been steadily working. Uh, I, I, I checked. And uh, in 2020, when we had to stop for a year, um, we had the last time we had a break like that was 1986. And we were in high school still. So that means every single year for 30, you know, 34 of those 35 years, we've been working a lot on the road. Like there's always been a lot of gigs. Even when we were starting out, we were gigging a lot in the city. We would do like five gigs a week. And we pretty much maintained that. And the result is that we we're not hurting for money, but we uh, got to go and get it. We have yeah. to go and scrap for but there, it. But there's some bands that do, you know, they, they have like a, fame and then they just bottom out maybe it's right. drugs or maybe they just didn't have the talent or the fan Those, base i mean uh, that stuff happened to us too you know i mean uh bob sheehan passing away was definitely a blow to the band and you know like a, a pivotal 
change in our sound, in our thinking, and as a family. You know, um, he w- he had a, a very serious problem, but so did I. I was uh, 436 pounds, and, you know, food was my drug of choice. And we both had each other to go, well, I'm not as bad as you. You know, uh, right. the band intervention had to miss uh, Red Rocks in 99 because I was 95% blocked in my artery. And the intervention was the two, it was Brendan and Chan coming to me and saying, we're really worried about Bobby. And he showed up two hours late for the intervention and he didn't look good. And that was the last time I saw him alive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, dude, you got to get your shit together. And that was really uh, after you have a heart uh, thing, like they gave me uh, angioplasty and there's a weird uh, thing that where you go through a depression, like it's, it's kind of chemically, but also to have your um, best friend pass away. There's a real sense of this just inevitable doom that's coming your way. And you really feel like you're going to die. And my instinct was, I don't want to die. And Chan and his wife, uh, Serena at the time, uh, they found the gastric bypass operation. They researched it for me and they found it. I was like, yes, I'll do it. And what I wasn't expecting is that it would work because Bobby and I always kind of expected we would like make a huge impact and then die young, like Jimi Hendrix. And when he died, I remember uh, staring at my Jimi Hendrix poster and thinking that I'm nowhere near that black and white. It's about the gray. That's where the courage is. A friend of mine told me that. And it yeah. really, it's, it's, it's a, the courage is in living with the gray. Now, to your point about celebrity, um, I still am in a bit of denial. Like, uh, as soon as I think nobody knows who I am, everybody seems to. And then as I think everybody knows who I am, nobody seems to. And that's really how you have to live your life. And I'm glad that I've never had a Britney Spears kind of fame where I really am instantly recognizable around the world or Brad Pitt or something like that. Because then you really have trouble going off and finding some peace. But, you know, I can go to the DMV. And, you know, uh, I, I remember I was actually at the DMV once and this girl is whispering to her mom and I catch them and they're like, sorry, you look just like him. I said, no, no, I'm, that's me. And they're like, right. And they didn't believe me. And it was one time I was getting my license made. I didn't have my driver's license, but I couldn't prove it. <laughs> like I the mom over there and I'm like, see, and she's like, oh, I don't care. That's hilarious. <laughs> but it is funny you mentioned about the gray areas. I have to tell you, like, there are sometimes just as a writer where like I'll write something that I think is really good. And then there's a, like a lot because I have to write three columns a week. There are days where I write something and I'm not inspired to write it, but I know I have to. And to right. be honest with you, I'm sometimes more um, proud of yeah. the piece that I wrote that mm-hmm. turned out to be fine because that means I'm a professional. If I can yeah. write without a great idea, that's a professional. This is a conversation in your own head. People will be inspired by stuff you didn't realize was inspiring to them because to you it wasn't inspiring. And that's a really important distinction. Um, I learned that early on about playing music. Um, uh, An amateur, after he plays, someone will go, hey, you did a great job. Are you kidding? I fucked this up. I fucked that up. I messed this up. And I was late on bar five. And they're like, oh, sorry. Uh, But a professional just goes, it just shuts the hell up because <laughs> people don't know what's going through your head. And that's not what they want to, you know, they're not really trying to know that much of your process. They're seeing the good stuff. 
And if you do work and you're not inspired, you still have to do it. And that professional, I've felt that way too, where like you, the show must go on and you can at least keep it together to have other people have a good time. They're going to find something in there that you didn't see. You know, to this day, I still have auditory hallucinations when I'm playing in front of a crowd where you'll hear, uh, like I'm imagining I'm here. So, oh, you messed that up. Oh, there's that thing. I swear to God, I'll hear somebody in the crowd saying that. And then when you actually do get heckled, it's such a different experience <laughs> because it's funny that like, you know, it's it goes by in like a second and they're like, yeah, you suck. And you're like, thank you. And somehow it like snaps you into wanting to do it to keep going because at least they heard you. Yeah. So there's, there's something about that that you'll never find peace. You will never be satisfied as a writer and you're not supposed to be. That's yep. what Jerry Garcia said. Uh, if I was ever satisfied, I'd quit. And I still am close to getting it right, but I still haven't nailed it, in my opinion. That sounds like Jim Jim Leland talked talk, talked about uh, when he should stop managing baseball, and he said uh, when the losses don't hurt as much as the elation of of winning. Never. That's what he's really saying because he loves it. He loves baseball, so it will always hurt, yeah. even games he's not managing. Though the team he's rooting for, where he understands, you know, they've got this chance. And if they miss that chance and it's, he's not even involved, it's going to bug him just as a baseball professional. And he can't get away from that. That's that's what it is. Our job, like, I look at it like I would have been unsatisfied anyway. But if I've got a band and I can do something about it, at least I'll be unsatisfied while I'm trying to do something. <laughs> right, right. I was curious about your your process you know, you've been with the same guys, Chan and, and Brendan, for, you know, since high school. Is, is your process different with, with, with those guys? You know, obviously, uh, you know, the rest of the band, too. Chan's a little brother. Chan's a little brother. He's probably in his yeah. 40s now. But yes. I think he's like 39 or something. We'll say he's in his late 30s just for his sake. <laughs> is, is your process different with them versus when you're jamming with, uh, say, Duskray, two troubadours? or Totally. Um you know, like I was saying about Bobby, uh, he wasn't formally trained and that became part of our language communicating with each other. So when I'm playing with the band, I know how to communicate with them through like grunts and squeaks that are very elaborate. We have our own elaborate language that we formed on our own. So it's um, a lot different if I was like, all right, let's get a song going. We we have our process and it's a slower one, but a more thorough one. And in within that, we find a lot of opportunities for cool stuff that we wouldn't have otherwise come to. It's like you, you accidentally do things in 15-8 and people are like, wow, how rhythmically complex. And it's like the only way we knew how to get from here to there. And so like our editing process, I think as a band has evolved. So it was changing the whole time and it still is. But when I go and work with... Um, you know, professionals, like there's a side band and they're supposed to know my song and I'm like Chuck burying it. They, um, I can talk musical lingo with them because I've, the whole time I've been going and sitting in with people. Um, what I'm really excited about now is now Chan, who's uh, completely sober, um, is like a motherfucker again on the guitar. And he's going, and I always told him this for years, you need, you're in LA, you need to go sit in with side bands because not only does it make you better, it makes us better. You're going to bring that to the band. And he was always saying, well, I got kids. Uh, but I think there was a point where he sort of didn't have the confidence. And now he's out in LA with this band. Oh, I'm trying to remember what they're called. Um, 
like Warhorse Circus, I think, or something like that, like some cool name. And they're a power trio. And I've been hearing him play lately. We just did a, a run of three gigs. He's like on fire and he's coming up with new stuff that's like mind blowing. And that's pushing me. I'm like, oh shit, I can't just give the same old shtick. I got to like evolve here. That's awesome. And it makes you like try and keep up with him. And that's what I do to him. And that's what we do to each other. And it, it becomes an infectious. It's like the herpes you want to catch. You know, it's like. <laughs> I think I, I thought there was a, a, a non-monogamy argument going on here with this. Very much. There's <laughs> a, don't trading. be monogamous with your band. What you need is a wife who will let you go off and orgy and she goes off and orgies. And, uh, you know, in, in artistic circumstances, that is what you want. You want everybody fucking everybody and just jizz all of <laughs> the best. And, you know, I think metaphorically, that's what you're looking for. That's so, awesome. Corey, is, is that a first for your... I think we got a couple great sound bites so far for your podcast. So. Yeah, yeah. So, um, okay. So I'd be absolutely remiss if I didn't ask a question on behalf of my brother, who was a bass player. And then he heard you. We started going to your your gigs, uh, Blues Traveler gigs. Um, this is like 88, I want to say. Yeah. So my brother put down the bass and he picked up the harp because of you. So he... he I'm he, sorry. I would like to apologize to you first and foremost and all of your friends. So since since we're getting explicit, I got I got to ask uh, on behalf of Eddie, tongue bro- blocker or lip purser? Both. OK, that's we had a bet. I, I thought I thought both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I'll, I'll use the tongue block when I'm getting a nice chord with a Leslie. And, um, you know, if I'm playing chords and things, that's usually what I tend to tongue block. But if I'm going individual notes, I was always a lip piercer. What did you call it? A lip purser. Pucker. Yeah. Yeah. Lip purser. I, I was that guy. Um so generally when I'm doing single notes, that would be where I go to. But I've used both and still do because you don't know what is called for. Like you want a nice ninth chord. Tongue blocking is the way to do it. And you can play tongue blocking as melodically. You get a little uh, blister on your tongue, but hey. Yeah. You know, I think the, the main thing is you got to keep your lips moist here. Or you're going to cut them. That, that's why I like special 20s. You know, the marine bands that that wood chunks turns into a soft, they swell. And, um, you know, I like to move them around fast. I uh, Any other questions he needs answered? Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're running out of time. We, yeah. we got to be, we got to yeah. keep it tight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, sorry. Thank you. Thank you for, for joining us. This is awesome. Thank you for having me. And uh, I'd love to do this again sometime. You guys that would are really be awesome. Great. Let's do it. So Let's do you it. have some dates coming up. You want to share some dates so we can uh, pimp you? Uh, Yes, I know this summer we're on tour with Train and Jewel. I'll be seeing you in Irvine. Yeah, I'm, I, we yeah. already got our tickets. So. so we're basically going everywhere. And then um, before that, I think starting May 1st, no, May 3rd in Rochester, New York. I think it's May, geez, I don't know, May 6th is Rochester. So we're doing uh, a gig in Times Square. I don't know if that's for the public or not in like May 4th. So basically once May rolls around, start looking for us. We'll, yeah. We'll check start. out blues track. It's, and it's just bluestraveler.com, right? So you can check it out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. On the site there. So, well, this was awesome. Popper. I, I, I what a treat, man. The last time we oh. talked, we did talk, but yeah. it was in, I want to say the fall of 1988 at chestnut cabaret. <laughs> it was that? about three in the, you guys opened for the radiators and yes. then you came on and jammed with that, with, uh, they call him Fish Fishhead, I think, uh, is his nickname. Uh, the the keyboard player and singer for yeah. Radiators. 
So you I came remember. on, but then afterwards you hung out and you were at a table and you offered me a tape. I guess it was a recording of the, of the, the show that night. And oh, I didn't cool. have even $5 to scrape together to, to buy that tape off you. So uh, nice. Did I give it to you at least? No, no, no. I, I wouldn't. I was a <laughs> bastard. Wow. For <laughs> tape. Well, I hope it. I hope we don't wait thirty something years to talk again. This was a. This was an absolute treat, Popper. I, I. I'm so so grateful that you came on and joined us. See what I'm going to do, whether I win or lose the Grammy, right after the Grammys. At what? So what are you going to do if you win or lose the Grammys? I'm going to Disneyland. <laughs> I'm literally taking my daughter from Vegas. We're driving straight to Disney for a week, so I figured that's that'll be a good omen. That is awesome. <laughs> well, so much love to Eloise. Is that how you pronounce your name? Yeah. Oh, Much love right. to Eloise. She's a she's a lucky, lucky girl to have a, a dad like you. <laughs> oh, that, well, let's hope that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, but, John. That was awesome. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. You bet. So what do you think, man? <laughs> An absolute thrill. I mean, I, I wasn't bullshitting when I when I earlier when I introduced him as like literally one of, if not my favorite band ever. So getting to talk to popper is like i i'm i'm still kind of struck about it like just that is so other than maybe talking to bruce springsteen like yeah people don't realize too so i started i started playing in bands like in 93 94 you know around that area era and that's when blues traveler broke nationally yeah and they were like on mtv and vh1 and, and people nowadays i don't think realize a, what it was like to have music videos on MTV, but like if that you were you were a big big deal. I mean, you you know you you weren't just a band. Like mm. if you were on MTV and you were being played like on in DC DC one hundred one or or you know uh, WHFS was kind of the alternative channel in DC yeah. back then. It was it was huge, and so to get to talk to him is super cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so that that night that I referred to when they opened for the uh, radiators, um, I was uh, I had to sneak in. I had to get a fake ID. I wasn't 21 yet. And um, I rode my motorcycle in this like misty rain uh, there. So I probably looked like a, you know, a, I probably looked like a ragamuffin all wet, and just strong, you know, just. And you didn't have five dollars. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even have five bucks to give the guy. It was. Uh, but, you know, obviously I've. Yeah, I, I've I've been able to afford the albums since then, <laughs> but yeah, that was. I'm still uh, not sure if we should have if we should have called him John or Popper. And also, I want to note that I referred to you as by your last name a couple times. I think in the excitement, I just called you Nathan. Yeah, um, which I hope you're. But is it John or Popper? And is Nathan okay? I mean. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, he seemed pretty cool with it. So we always refer to him as Popper. So it was hard for me to call him John. I felt like, uh, you know, his mother would, would call him John, you know, but. Johnny, Jonathan, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Popper. Like and if your name's Popper, that's such a cool name too, right? Like Papa. It's just, it's it's a great, it's a great last name. So. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, we had a guy. No, no, no. Okay. We've already been illicit or explicit in it. <laughs> so we had a guy that um, I think he went to, there was a couple guys that we knew that went to Princeton and that's how we got to know, uh, you know, Popper and, and Chan and those guys really, really early on. One guy's name was my brother reminded me his, his real name was Phil Philippock, 
but we called him Philip the Pitcher because <laughs> he was always filling, filling up the. Wait, are you going to run? Now, here's a question I have because yeah. this your podcast is about faith and politics explicitly. Yeah but not supposed to be explicit. Right. Are you going to beep out? I mean, he, he dropped some really good, actually, I would call them sound bites, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Some words to live by, but but I don't know. You can put like an explicit rating on this? I, I, I keep the explicit rating uh, on it. Yeah. Okay. I wonder if that's stopping us from getting as many downloads as we could otherwise. Because most of our, most of our conversations, you know, we're not dropping F-bombs, but... Uh, I just keep the explicit on there just to feel a little bit more free and for the guests to feel a little bit more free. But uh, yours is probably um, not. Your, yours is probably I don't, not explicit. I never rating. check it, although – and by the way, I want to see, like, if, if the video looks good, do you mind if I post some of this on YouTube? Is oh, absolutely. Cool? Yeah. I'll, I'll okay. share both. Okay. Oh, we're still recording. <laughs> oh, that's fine. I think this is – the audience loves this kind of insight. Trust me, they come for this sort of inside information. Um, but no, my you so so I was gonna say like on my podcast I, I I tend to not have too many bad words but I don't mark it on the audio podcast. YouTube nowadays is like there's like a fifty point checklist you have to go through. Oh wow! Before you upload something about it has to do with monetization. So okay, on YouTube I will have to say foul language or you know that kind of thing. Um, but hey, I I thought it was good. Um, how do you feel? Because we I I know so going in. We didn't know how much time we were going to have with him. We found out right before we recorded that he he didn't have much time. Right. So um, he gave us three times as much time as he initially said. So it must I think have we been... had a great conversation. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was your take on like what we got in terms of, of, you know, we were going in there. Definitely wanted to talk politics. Yeah. Definitely wanted to talk religion, spirituality. Yeah. And and definitely both, I think, had some uh, per, a personal agenda that we both wanted to, you know, <laughs> for meeting a celebrity that meant a lot to us. So he was how, so how cool about when when you when we played the uh, you know your your stuff from from when you were um, when you were a rock and roll star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, right. That was pretty cool. That you know, I was got... huge in Martinsburg. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that that was pretty cool that he he gave it a listen and you know was encouraging and so are you going to put the band back together? And- <laughs> no, but you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to share this with uh, David Lance, our our blues harp player, because you know I have to go back and listen, but I think he was fairly complimentary. Yeah, and again, Dave 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 was just a great musician, and he started off I think like as a pianist or or actually playing like an electric organ or something, but he like literally learned to play harmonica off of a like cassette tape and a little booklet called how to play harmonica That's something funny. like that yeah yeah um well this is uh this has been a real treat my wife is texting me so i probably should, yeah. should attend we should to... get going um Corey but, nathan thanks yeah. for letting me be a part of this man lewis, <laughs> you, can call, lewis. you can call me al i don't care yeah seriously for <laughs> this was uh this was a real highlight for me so i really appreciate it and uh, I, I guess I'll say for both of us, if you dig what we, you know, conversations like this, hit the subscribe button for both of us. You'll be hearing on, on Talk of Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, as well as Matt Lewis in the news. Tell a friend about our, our stuff. And yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, what what else do you normally say? Support the program through the Patreon app, I, I think yeah. is what you're saying. Uh, Patreon.com slash Matt Lewis. You know what they could do? Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Matt K. Lewis. And we are Corey S. Nathan or TP and R pod 
is our and yeah. you know what follow blues traveler yeah absolutely um, yeah he might he might tweet you back <laughs> that's yeah how this like thing came together he literally that's how we met him people as much as i hate on twitter you can meet people on twitter it's a pretty amazing thing it really is so, so hey, and you, and you were doing it. I mean, like I've got the the pretentious blue check mark that sometimes can get you in the door. You don't have one, right? I I'm barely, this is I not think, me. Like I don't think I even have a thousand followers yet. So okay, so that's wait, this is the point I'm making. I'm not I'm not trying to be a, a jerk. The point I'm making is like you could be for all he knows, you were Joe Sixpack, right? I mean, he yeah. for all he knows, and you were able to talk to so like Twitter. It's really that's the one cool thing about it. Still, yeah. you can meet like famous people sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Just like kind of like I forget how we originally. Oh, our mutual friend Emily, our yes. producer Emily introduced us, so that was kind of cool. Great. But uh, no, I didn't have an Emily introduce me to Popper. It was just a Twitter thing. He just responded to a Twitter thing, and next thing we know, we're we're all talking together. So man, what a treat! Awesome. Thank. I really appreciate you because you could have just taken this and, and run and so thank you for letting me be be a part of it oh man it's been cool so let's you and i make sure that this isn't the last time we hang out because uh, you yeah. never know what can happen <laughs> every time we talk i have fun it's uh, always a good conversation good stuff good stuff all right and remember uh talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week thank you for joining us today if you dig what we're doing here it is super easy to follow us you can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>